Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. Will a new house speaker solve all the political problems in America? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. This is B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Use that coupon code PODCAST. Get 25% off all my classes, even the bundles, every day, all day. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com or the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube or go to Spotify for podcasters. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. You can also buy one of my books. Just go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Click on the shop tab. You can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And of course, comment on YouTube for the algorithm. And send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right, well, let's talk about the Speaker of the House situation. Uh, this was something that was going to be a really hot topic before we had what happened in Israel in the Gaza Strip. It was the big news last week. And, of course, it was historic. The fact that the House of Representatives voted to vacate the Speaker... Kevin McCarthy was out. This is something that Republicans, or was a block of Republicans, had warned about. That if McCarthy didn't follow through on what he promised, they were going to get rid of him. And they did it. Now, what I find fascinating about that, before I get into, will a new speaker change anything? What I find fascinating about that is that you have a block of Republicans. This is something that people talked about for years. You have a block of Republicans, a small block who are now swinging the entire House of Representatives. I remember back in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was some discussion of this. If you could get a block of really ardent conservatives to go into the House, they could control it. They could control spending. They could control the bills. They could control everything. And so this is exactly what's happened in a way. Now, I don't think any of these people are really that principled. If you look at who these renegades are... They're not really principled uh, individuals. They're more about the uh, image on social media or television or whatever they're going for. But regardless, uh, they've done something historic. McCarthy is out. First time this has ever happened. And he's talking about resigning his seat entirely and going back to California. So what's going to happen? Of course, there has been some discussion about Donald Trump becoming the Speaker of the House. There was actually a hit piece on that a few days back where when he was first 
nominated for the position. He only got one vote. And he was working with Matt Gates on that. In fact, when he kept just getting one vote, he finally told somebody to call Matt Gates and told him to cut it out because it was embarrassing for Trump. And I'm not so certain he would even get enough votes to, uh, to be a factor in it. But we have a, a couple of individuals, Steve Scalise, who is in many ways a notorious uh, compromiser. You know, Scalise, of course, tragically was shot in a, in a baseball game. I mean, it's horrible. It shows you how violent the left is. But on the other hand, Steve Scalise is one of these dopes that runs around saying, well, Confederate monuments were just Democrats. We should get rid of them. Uh, the, he, he has the intellectual capacity of a gnat. And then, the, and then you also have Jim Jordan. And uh, a lot of people, particularly in this more conservative block, are looking at Jim Jordan as potentially uh, the next Speaker of the House. And Jordan was nominated during the fiasco that resulted in Kevin McCarthy. And of course, there was that very famous image of Mike Rogers of Alabama, you know, trying to go at Matt Gates, and he's held back, you know, supposedly, uh, because Mike Rogers is just so upset about this. Again, Mike Rogers, the reason why the naming commission was created in the first place. Uh, these people are ridiculous. Okay, but um, the fact is, you have uh, you know Jim Jordan maybe to become Speaker of the House. But the real question is: Is anything going to change because you have a different Speaker of the House? Kevin McCarthy was certainly always willing to compromise with the other side. He wasn't an aggressive speaker. He wasn't someone that was going to really try to push an agenda. But I remember back in 1994 when Newt Gingrich was supposed to transform the House of Representatives. We were going to have this contract with America and all these things were going to happen. And some of the stuff did happen. I mean, look, there were, there were certainly uh, instances where the Republicans in both the House and the Senate were able to get what they wanted. And that's because Bill Clinton, as president, was willing to what, do what was called triangulation. He was going to take, for example, welfare reform and make it his issue. He was Bill Clinton, if nothing else, was a master and is a master politician. Bill Clinton was very good at politics. He understood how to play the game. Uh, Joe Biden, maybe you know, 20 years ago, you could have said the same thing. Now he's just a bumbling fool. And we do know that behind the scenes, the Obama administration, the leftovers, and I don't know if Obama himself, I mean, this is... You know, we, we've seen, if you haven't seen it, there's an interview where Obama says he'd like to work, live in the basement and have a little earpiece and just speak into the ear of the president. But we do know a lot of his people are in the Biden administration and essentially Barack Obama's policies have become Joe Biden's policies. So we have a third Obama term right now. And if Joe Biden wins again, if he does, if he's able to run again, I mean, of course, there's all that speculation. Is Biden going to run again? Is somebody else going to read? Is Gavin Newsom going to do this? I don't think it's going to happen. I think Joe Biden will still be the nominee in 24. And if he runs again and he wins, you're going to get a fourth Obama term. And then, as I've predicted on this show, Michelle Obama will be a candidate in one way or another in 2028. I think that she may even be the candidate in 2028. And, of course, because then that would knock out all of the first for the Obamas. I mean, this is these people have no shame. This is what they want. So... Uh, you would have a, 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 maybe a, a fifth Obama term and a sixth Obama term. I mean, I think 100, 200 years from now, we are going to call this the age of Obama. Without question. Trump was a blip. If Trump runs, if he's nominated and he runs, and he 
miraculously wins in 2024 because, again, there's going to be a full-court press to try to prevent that in one way or another. Uh, that would be a blip. This is not the age of MAGA or anything else. This is the age of Obama. And we have to understand that. The world, the foreign policy, the way the government operates, all of this is the age of Obama. So the House of Representatives, interestingly enough, has an opportunity to block most of this stuff. And I mentioned you know, Newt Gingrich. Uh, one of the things they, you know, they dropped, they dropped term limits. They did some things that weren't to their advantage when they assumed power in 1995. And I remember in 94, I mean, I was fired up about this. I mean, everybody was, yeah, Republicans come back in. This is back in my days of delusion that something like that could even matter. But uh, everybody was fired up about it. And, uh, of course, the Republicans controlled the Senate. Bob Dole was Senate Majority Leader. And they still had the Clinton White House. Now, in this case, the Republicans have to get through the Senate, which is controlled by the Democrats and the Biden administration. That's a hard, that's a hard sell. And to do it is extremely difficult. Plus, the rules have changed. And as this piece I'm going to read from Ron Paul points out, this is a new Congress. This is a new, this is a new way to operate. And it's a dangerous way to operate. Now, again, a little historical information here. Uh, in the 1830s, James Fenimore Cooper, and if you take my class, The Age of Jackson, at McClanahan Academy, it's, I've got it on sale right now. Use the coupon code MANIFESTDESTINY and get 80 bucks off on that class. The Age of Jackson. Manifest Destiny coupon code. James Fenimore Cooper wrote a little book in 1838 entitled The American Democrat. And this book is remarkable for so many reasons. But one of the things he says in that book, which I find fascinating, when he talks about executive government, he says that executive government isn't the problem. It's the fact that Congress keeps punting its responsibility, and then the president acts. So it's actually Congress at the core that's the problem. John C. Calhoun said the same thing. It wasn't the executive branch that we should fear. It's the legislative branch that we should fear. And if you think about what's happened over the last century or more, century and a half, really since the end of the war in 1865, it's been the Congress that's been responsible for this rush into both executive government and massive bureaucracy in the United States. Because, you see, Congress doesn't want to be held accountable for anything. Congress really can't be held accountable for everything, for anything. This is why when the Constitution was sold to the states, one of the selling points was that there was an executive that you could pinpoint and say, well, yeah, this person has energy and accountability more than anything else. Who are you going to hold accountable in Congress? Most people don't even know what the Congress does. right? Most people don't know in Mike Rogers' own district that Mike Rogers was essentially supportive of this bill that created the naming commission that's now spent millions of dollars to do stupid things like change signs because a name on a military base hurts people. This is ridiculous. It was, it was uh, Elizabeth Warren, Nancy Pelosi. This is what they wanted. And Mike Rogers, who is uh, a prominent figure on the Appropriations Committee for the Defense Department, or for you know congressional military spending, went along with it. And 
spearheaded the effort to override Trump's veto of this thing. So Mike Rogers is just as woke as any of these other morons. Why? Because he could have blocked this. It could have been done. But no, what was more important to Mike Rogers was all the money that the United States government was going to spend in his district on the military. You see, he trades principle for cash. That's what all these people do. And that's the sad thing about our Republican leaders. But we've had this problem with congressional punting now for a very long time. And, you know, it could be an issue like the federal court system. Well, the Congress has control over that. All the whining and bloviating they do about the federal court system, they could correct all of it. Even people on the left recognize this. You know, Jamel Bowie understands Congress could do something about this. If they wanted to cut the gut the Ninth Circuit, for example, they could do it. They could remove federal court jurisdiction over anything. They could just say you don't have it. And therefore, I mean, this was an argument back in the early 19th century. Actually, late 18th century, there was an argument about this. But very much in the early 19th century, that, uh, I mean, if, if Congress wanted to make an impact, they could just say, all right, Uh, We're removing your jurisdiction over all these things, and then the federal courts can't do anything that they do now. They would have no ability. They'd have no authority. They are are tied to what Congress says they can do. And the same thing for the bureaucracy. Same thing for the executive branch. Congress is the entity that decides how much money the executive branch is going to get, what the bureaucracy is going to get, how big it's going to get. But they don't do anything about it. And this is the point that Matt Gates and others have made, and it's why they removed McCarthy, because they said, look, if we're going to stop this headlong rush into, you know, runaway inflation, to wars all around the globe, if we're going to stop that, then Congress has to put the brakes on it, because Congress has the ability to do it. The other thing, of course, that Congress does over and over again, they, they legislate on issues that they have no authority to legislate on, when it comes to the states, for example, and Yesterday, I talked about you know, first principles, and this is something Jefferson said. Those first principles matter. If we're going to get people that are voted into power in Washington, D.C., those first principles, those real Jeffersonian principles matter. And we don't have anybody that follows them really anymore. Now, we used to. And in fact, um, I'm going to read you a piece from Ron Paul. And Ron Paul was one of the few people in the house that would do the good work. Um, and... You know, I remember, you know, first reading Ron Paul back in the, gosh, in the 90s. Um, And uh, he'd been in Congress a long time before that, but it was like a breath of fresh air. And, of course, I'm still a, you know, young, young person at that point, and I'm just learning who these people are. But Ron Paul has been saying these things for, you know, 30-plus years, 40 years he's been saying this stuff, and really no one listens. But he wrote a piece today that appeared at uh, lewrockwell.com, Will a new speaker, new House Speaker, solve our problems? And there's a couple of things that I find fascinating in this, and I'm gonna, I'm going to editorialize a little bit. So he says, last week we missed, we witnessed a dramatic historical first. A Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives was removed from that position by a vote from members of that body. U.S. Representative Matt Gates was able to gather enough Republicans dissatisfied with the leadership of then Speaker Kevin McCarthy to send him packing. What was the last straw? According to Gates, it was McCarthy's secret deal with President Biden and the Democrats to bring up another huge funding package for Ukraine separately if they agreed to support a bill to keep the government open without Ukraine money in it. 
So again, McCarthy says, okay, we're going we're gonna to have a, a clean bill here, supposedly. A, a clean bill that's going to keep the government running because they're facing a potential government shutdown. Which, by the way, most people in the United States aren't worried about. I remember when this happened in the 90s, and I've said this before. There were people, of course, where I lived at that time who had family members that worked in D.C., and they were all wringing their hands. These are the people that really worry about it. Most Americans know that, yeah, I mean, it, if you're getting a federal check, there are some things that, you know, there might be some interruptions, and the Democrats will make sure, they will attempt to make sure that enough pain is inflicted on as many people as possible that people will notice a government shutdown. They're vindictive. But back at that time, there was some discussion about, well, all non-essential workers are going to be sent home, and all non-essential payments won't be made. Well, think about that logically. If these people were non-essential and the money was non-essential, then why are we spending it? I mean, logically, that's what you would think, right? If you're if you are if you're broke and you keep spending non-essential money, you just become more broke. Well, in this case, the United States government doesn't have enough money to fund itself every single year. It has to borrow money all the time or print it, which is basically borrowing it from American taxpayers through inflation. So if they're broke and they're saying, well, we're just going to not spend non-essential money, well, then the essential money should only be what's spent to begin with. This is what, I mean, look, you go back to the 19th century, even Henry Clay, big government Henry Clay, and I talk about this at the age of Jackson class too, big government Henry Clay said, look, if we, American taxpayers aren't going to stand for a surplus in the treasury, if we're not going to do that, we're going to cut taxes back to spend only what we need to spend. And that's it. Now, some of that was more than what the Democrats at that time are willing to spend. But that's it. That's all we're going to spend. Now we're running deficits every year. and uh, So there isn't any money. So what McCarthy was going to do is have a continuing resolution to keep the government going and then have a clean bill on Ukraine so they could spend billions of dollars in Ukraine. Because as even 60 Minutes has started to point out, you know, their entire government now is being run by the United States. Funded, anyways, by the United States. And of course, Zelensky is just a puppet for the U.S. now. They've become a proxy state of the United States. Why? This is the real question. Why? We're fighting the Russians in a proxy war. And enough Republicans have said, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? And now we've got another potential problem in the Middle East. So the piece continues, Gates and his allies were angry that they were kept in the dark about the deal. And in the end, it only took eight Republican rebels to end McCarthy's eight months in the chair. Eight people. And again, this is what was discussed back in the 90s and early 2000s. If you could get a block of really good, solid conservatives in the House, they could run the government. Because we're going to have razor-thin majorities anyway. So if you had 20 people, it would be a powerful enough block to do anything they wanted. So let's say these 20 people could be anti-war. Well, they're going to side with either the left or the right on this, right? So right now, generally the Republicans are going to be against the war in Ukraine, generally, not all of them, but generally. They could, a 20 block could probably block any more money going to Ukraine. 
unless the president does it unconstitutionally, which isn't outside the realm of possibility. That's an impeachable offense. On the other hand, we're going to be looking at sending money, more money now, which we already spend a lot on Israel, but we're going to spend more on Israel. So these 20 people, and generally the Democrats, are against that. So these 20 people could side with the Democrats and block that. And that's just foreign policy. Domestic policy, they could do the same thing. So it's great to have a block of people who are willing to do this. There's actually a show that uh, that works on this premise. And um, it's, it's one of these reality shows, but Survivor, right? So they have blocks, voting blocks. And people have figured this out. We can just have blocks that move around all the time and vote in ways that will keep us in power and marginalize the other factions. And that block becomes extremely powerful. This is exactly what you can do in Congress. It's, it's not rocket science, but you got to have people that are dedicated and strong enough and principled enough to do it. Paul says, several thoughtful members, including my friend Thomas Massey, made convincing arguments that Republicans removing the Speaker would do little to nothing when looking at the bigger picture of a record U.S. debt, a continuously growing budget deficit, and runaway inflation. It would also argue do little to fix a broken House of Representatives, where members are more interested in showboating than taking a needed chainsaw to the massive yearly omnibus spending bill that has taken the place of individual funding bills for each part of the federal government. Now, this is an important point that Paul is making here. And Thomas Massey's right. Or even the Speaker is not going to do anything. Right? It won't. I mean, Paul is the point. is It's not going to do anything. You've got to have something else happen in the House. You've got to have these blocks. Again, I don't think these eight people are really that principled. They're just doing it for their own publicity. You know, Matt Gates potentially wants to be governor of Florida or something else. Right? He's doing it to, to elevate his political profile. But the fact is, what we have now in Congress are omnibus bills. You know, and this was a problem back in the 19th century. In fact, in 1861, when the South seceded and they wrote a new constitution, one of the things they did was insert in that constitution a requirement that all spending bills had to be what we would call earmarks. They were specific appropriations only. So if you wanted to spend whatever amount of money, and I've said it on this show before, if you wanted to spend today $10 billion in Ukraine, you had to specify how all that $10 billion would be spent. It couldn't just be an omnibus bill and just give them the cash. And uh, they would take a two-thirds majority to get these things through. So what you had was a Calhounian response to out-of-control federal spending. It was a superior model to what we have in the United States right now. None of the stuff that we really have and we spend money on would even go through if you had to have a two-thirds majority. I mean, Jamel Bowie would actually go into fits of rage if this would happen. But it was the best way forward because they realized that what the general government was doing in the 80 years that led up to 1861 was a disaster. And it was the spending that Southerners had a problem with almost the whole time. So if you had to get a two-thirds majority to get any of these things through, you just wouldn't have hardly any money spent from the general government. The states would have to take it on. And so what you would see is much lower federal taxes and much higher state taxes. And you know you, you would be able to choose which state you wanted to live in based on the tax structure and services and everything else, the political culture of those areas. You could go live in those places. 
you could move around the Federation and be in a place that you wanted to live in. So the Confederate model in 1861 was superior to what we have the U.S. government, which is a simple majority. You have these omnibus bills. Uh, it's just a big block of money, and there's no accountability. So there needs to be some type of innovation in this that we could go back to that. I mean, look, if you want to propose amendments, in, in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, I talked about proposing some amendments to limit executive power, but this would be one to limit congressional power, which really is the problem. They control the purse strings. They control the, the situation with war. I mean, they are, they are the people that control everything. So Paul says, when I was in the House, we worked mostly worked under what was called regular order, where each individual appropriations bill was brought to the floor and debated sometimes for several days, and with unlimited amendments before they held a vote. With regular order, there was at least a chance that members and staff could actually read the bills and try to make changes. Multi-thousand-page omnibus bills brought to the floor at the last minute with the demand that they be passed immediately is part of the reason we are up to our eyeballs in debt. They can and do sneak everything into them. This is true. These, these omnibus bills are dangerous. And again, these things are thousands and thousands of pages. And they're not even written by members of Congress. They're written by special interest groups and outside interests. They don't even write them. Congress is just there as a front for all the special interest groups now. This is why David Hume's ideal republic would have decentralized so much that the money couldn't chase any of these things. It would have to spend too much money to try to influence all of these different people in different areas. And all these things would have vetoes over the other. I mean, it was it's the idea is to end the corruption. Washington, D.C., the Beltway, if you don't know what that is, if you're not familiar with D.C., maybe you're listening to this and you're not in the United States or uh, you've never really been there, but there's a, it's 495. There's a circle around Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is in the center of the circle. And that center of the circle, everything around, everything in that beltway is like its own entity outside of that. People are, are looking at these, at the corruption there. I mean, this is the, the court of Louis XIV. This is the French court now. We have the court party and the country party. The court party is just about the entire establishment. And then everybody else in the United States is saying, what the heck is going on here? Why are we doing this? But as you send people to the court, they become members of the court. I mean, they got to wear the coat. They got to get the jacket that Louis XIV required, and it bankrupt everyone, but you got to have the jacket. There are very few people in Congress who are willing to buck that. Thomas Massey is one of them, by the way. I mean, he's great, but um, there are very few people there that are willing to do this. So Paul says, even with the deserved criticism, however, there is still something satisfying about seeing such a shakeup over the issue of foreign interventionism. After a year and a half of and more than $100 billion sent by Biden's neocons for the proxy war with Russia and Ukraine, finally some members are starting to wake up and say no to demands for even more. $100 billion. I mean, that's, that is a huge amount of cash. It, it's it's actually unreal, the amount of money. These wars instigated by neocons from both parties always end in disaster, but not until they produce much suffering in the countries they claim to want to liberate. They also further punish the middle and working class while enriching the wealthy and well-connected 
in the military-industrial complex. All this is true, right? I mean, it creates inflation. It punishes. I mean, food prices are up. Gas prices are going to go up now. People are really struggling. And uh, I mean, it, it's amazing that they don't. People don't see this. And, and of course, oftentimes, well, I, I, I'm going to get this for free. I'm going to get this from the from the government for free. It's not free. They printed that money to give it to you, so you're going to pay a tax anyways. The cost of this latest war will be hidden on the cruelest tax, inflation, which disproportionately hurts the poor. Absolutely. I mean, you go to the store and eggs are up, meat's up. Any kind of packaged goods, you're getting shrinkflation, so the price goes up, the package gets smaller. Or maybe the package just gets smaller. I mean, you look at a bag of chips, it's family size. It used to be like a snack size, practically. And this is what you're getting. Everyone's doing it. And uh, you can, some people have pointed back, well, corporations don't have to do it. Well, they're going to do it. I mean, that's the thing. Maybe they don't have to. They'd have to cut their profit, but they're going to do it. And so to, to criticize them for it, it's just, I mean, that's gaslighting. This is Congress gaslighting and blaming corporations. The, the blame all goes back on them for printing all this money and spending out of control on all kinds of things they shouldn't spend any money on. Paul concludes by saying, will a new Speaker of the House solve our problems? No. Our biggest problem is our financial and moral bankruptcy, which has been brewing for over 100 years since the creation of the Fed and the rise of the progressive era. Well, yeah, but I mean, I could go back before that. Our moral bankruptcy started a long time before 100 years ago. And our political bankruptcy and financial bankruptcy started way back before that. This has been a problem since the Constitution was written. It's why people were opposed to it. He says, but finally we are seeing members responding to rising anger among the electorate over the financing of another foreign war, this time with a nuclear superpower. Finally, we see members saying enough to demands for even more money for the U.S. empire. It's a good start, and we should do all we can to encourage it. And I, look, I agree. I mean, there's a question you know, that showed the eight people that opposed the bill. What do you call these people? I mean, what do you say to them? Good job. I mean, somebody has to do it. Now, the states, and this is where groups, you know, like, again, I've said it many times, the 10th Amendment Center and all the yeoman's work they do trying to get work with legislatures to try to craft bills that uh, can thwart federal intervention and what should be state issues. I mean, these are things, this is, this is eternal vigilance, as what used to be said, I mean, in, in the Jeffersonian period, eternal vigilance. You have to have eternal vigilance. Because if you're not watching these people all the time, the corruption will seep in, and it's really bad. And without people willing to stand up and do these things, well, then you're just going to keep having more and more corruption. So, uh, will the Speaker, again, I'm going to echo it, will a new Speaker of the House solve our problems? Well, absolutely not. I mean, there's no way. But a new Speaker of the House, it's a start, right? It's, it's, it's a wake-up call. Do your job that you're sent there to do and stop spending all this money. But for years, and I'll say this, the Republicans were just a useful opposition. They were just happy to be at the table. And if the Democrats just let them have a seat, they were going to do whatever the Democrats wanted. This is really That was really the case from, say, the time of the New Deal in FDR up until the 1990s. And then what happened is Republicans got a little taste of power and they were never able to follow through because they couldn't take the heat. Democrats control all the media, they control everything, and they started blasting these people 
And they didn't like being criticized. So they fell back a little bit and they just start working with the Democrats again. You see, the Democrats are a nasty group of people and they are political kneecappers. They know how to play. Our th they are thugs in the purest, political thugs in the purest sense. They will take you down and have no remorse about doing it. The Republicans don't operate this way. And uh, that's what really happened in, in D.C. So, anyways, see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.